0: The Guardian. You're listening to The Guardian short story podcast, featuring great authors reading and discussing their favourite short story. In this edition, we feature Helen Simpson, who was chosen to read The Kitchen Child by Angela Carter. Born in a trunk, they say, when a theatrical sups grease paint with mother's milk. And if there be a culinary equivalent of the phrase, then surely I merit it, for was I not conceived the while a souffle rose, a lobster souffle, very choice, twenty-five minutes in a medium oven, and the very first souffle that ever in her life, as cook, me mam was called upon to make, ordered up by some French duke, house guest of sir and madam. Me man pleased as punch to fix it for him since few, if any, fan-beck pecked their way to our house, not even during the two weeks of the great grouse shoot when knobs rolled up in droves to score the feathered booty of the skies. Especially not then. Pallets like shoe leather. Pearls before swine, my mother would have said as she reluctantly sent the four-and-twenty courses of her art up to the dining room, except that pigs would have exhibited more gourmandise. I tell you, the English country house, yes, that's the place for grub but only when sir and madame are pas chez louis. It is the staff who keep up the standards. For madame would touch nothing but oysters and grapes on ice three times a day due to the refinement of her sensibility, while sir fasted until a devilled bone at sundown, his tongue having been burned out by curry when he was governing a bit of poona. I reckon those Indians hotted up his fodder out of spite. Oh, the cook's vengeance when it strikes. Terrible. And as for the shooters of grouse... All they wanted was sandwiches for hors d'oeuvre, sandwiches for entree, followed by sandwiches, sandwiches, sandwiches. And their hip flasks kept replenished. Oh yes, wash it down with the amber fluid and who can tell how it tastes? So me mam took great pains with the construction of this, her very first lobster souffle, sending the boy who grounds knives off on his bike to the sea, miles for the beast itself. And then the boiling of it alive, how it comes, squeaking piteously, crawling out of the pot, etc, etc, etc. So me ma'am all a flutter before she so much as separated the eggs. Then, just as she bent over the range to stir the flour into the butter, a pair of hands clasped tight around her waist. Thinking at first it was but kitchen horseplay, she twitched her ample hips to put him off as she slid the egg yolks into the roux. But as she mixed in the lobster meat, diced up all nice, she felt those hands stray higher. That was when too much cayenne went in. She always regretted that. And as she was folding in the toppling contents of the bowl of beaten egg white, God knows what it was he got up to, but so much so she flings all into the white dish with abandon and... To hell with it! Into the oven goes the souffle. The oven door slams shut. I draw a veil... But, ma'am, I often begged her, who was that man? Looks a mercy, child, says she, I never thought to ask. I was that worried the wallop I give the oven door would bring the souffle down. But no, the souffle went up like a montgolfier, and as soon as its golden head knocked imperiously against the oven door, she bust through the veil I have discreetly drawn over this scene of passion, and emerged, smoothing her apron in order to extract the exemplary dish amidst oohs and ahs of the assembled kitchen staff. Some forty-five in number. But not quite exemplary. The cook met her match in the eater. The housekeeper brings his plate herself, slaps it down. He said, Tro de Cayenne, and scraped it off his plate into the fire, she announces with a gratified smirk. She is a model of refinement and always very particular about her aspirates. She hiccups. She even says the H in hic. My mother weeps for shame. What we need here is a continental hick chef to improve le ton," menaces the housekeeper, tossing me ma'am a killing look as she sweeps out the door. For me ma'am is a simple Yorkshire lass for all she has magic in her fingers. But no room for two queens in this hive, the housekeeper hates her. And the housekeeper is pricked perpetually by the fancy for the importation of a carme or a soyer with moustache-like hat racks to croquembouche her and millifilly her as is all the rage. "'For isn't it Albalin, chef to the dear Devonshires, "'and Crepin at the Duchess of Sutherlands? "'Then has Labarne with the Duke of Beaufort's household, don't you know? "'And the Queen, bless her, has her ménagerie. "'While well, we're stuck with that fat cow who can't speak nothing but broad Yorkshire, "'never out of her carpet slippers. "'Conceived upon a kitchen table, borne upon a kitchen floor, "'no bells rang to welcome me, "'but far more aptly my arrival heralded by a bang, bang, bang "'on every skillet in the place.' A veritable fusillade of copper bottomed kitchen timpany, and the merry clatter of ladle against dish cover, and the very turnspit dogs all went bow wow. It being, as you might yourself compute, a good three months off October, Sir and Madam being in London, the housekeeper maintains a fine style all by herself, sitting in her parlour, partaking of the best bohea from a meissen cup, to which she adds a judicious touch of rum from the locked bottles to which she's forged a key in her ample leisure. The housekeeper's little skivvy that she keeps to fetch, carry and lick boot, just topping the teacup up with old Jamaica, all hell breaks loose below stairs as if a Chinese orchestra started up its woodblocks and xylophones. Crash, wallop. What on earth are the hick lower alders up to, elocutes the housekeeper in ladylike and dulcet tones, giving the ear of the skivvy a quick but vicious tug to jerk the gossip out of her. Oh, madamissima, quavers the poor little skivvyette, tis no but the cook's babby. The cook's baby? Due to my mother's corpulence, which is immense, she's round as the O in Obese, and the great loyalty and affection towards her of all the kitchen staff, the housekeeper knew nothing of my imminence, but amid her waxing wrath also glad to hear it, since she thought she spied a way to relieve my mother of her post due to this unsolicited arrival, and then nags sir and madam to get in some mincing and pomaded gent to chodefoy and julet and butter up, Below stairs she descends forthwith, a stately yet none too stable progress due to the rum with a dash of tea she sips all day. The skivvy running in front of her to throw wide the door. What a spectacle greets her. Raphael might have sketched it, had he been in Yorkshire at the time. My mother wreathed in smiles, enthroned on a sack of spuds with, at her breast, her babe all neatly swallowed in a new-boiled pudding cloth, and the entire kitchen brigade arranged around her in attitudes of adoration, each brandishing a utensil and giving out therewith that merry rattle of the ladles, yours truly's first lullaby. Alas, my cradle song soon peters out in the odd swack and tinkle as the housekeeper casts her coldest eye. What's this? A bonny boy, croons me ma'am, planting a smacking kiss on the tender forehead, pressed against her pillowing bosom. Out of the house for this, cries the housekeeper. Hick, she adds. But what a clang and clamour she unleashes with that demand, as if she'd let off a bomb in a hardware store, for all present, except my mother and myself, attack their improvised instruments with renewed vigour, chanting in unison, The kitchen child, the kitchen child, you can't turn out the kitchen child. And that was the truth of the matter. Who else could I claim as my progenitor if not the greedy place itself, that if it did not make me all the same it caused me to be made? Not one scullery maid nor the littlest vegetable boy could remember who or what it was which visited my mother that souffle morning. Every hand in the kitchen called to cut sandwiches, but some fat shape seemed to have haunted the place, drawn to the kitchen as a ghost to the dark. Had not that gourmet duke kept a gourmet valet? Yet his outlines melt like aspic in the heat from the range. The kitchen child! The kitchen brigade made such a din that the housekeeper retreated to revive herself with another tot of rum in her private parlour, for, faced with a mutiny amongst the pans, she discovered little valour in her spirit and went to sulk in her tent. The first toys I played with were colanders, egg whisks, and saucepan lids. I took my baths in the big tureen in which the turtle soup was served. They gave up salmon until I could toddle, because, as for my crib, what else but the copper salmon kettle? And this kettle was stowed way up high on the mantel shelf, so I could snooze there, snug and warm out of harm's way, soothed by the delicious odours and appetising sounds of the preparation of nourishment. And there I cooed my way through babyhood above that kitchen, as if I were its household deity, high in my tiny shrine. And indeed, is there not something holy about a great kitchen?' those vaults of soot darkened stone far above me where the hams and strings of onions and bunches of dried herbs dangle, looking somewhat like the regimental banners that unfurl above the aisles of old churches, the cool echoing flags scrubbed spotless twice a day by votive persons on their knees, the scoured gleam of row upon row of metal vessels dangling from hooks or reposing on their shelves till needed with the air of so many chalices waiting for the celebration of the sacrament of food and the range like an altar, yes, an altar, before which my mother bowed in perpetual homage, a fringe of sweat upon her upper lip and fire glowing in her cheeks. At three years old she gave me flour and lard, and straight away I invented short crust. I, being too little to manage the pin, she hoists me on her shoulders to watch her as she rolls out the dough upon the marble slab, then sets me to stamp out the tartlets for myself, tears of joy at my precocity trickling down her cheeks, Let's me dollop on the damson jam and lick the spoon for my reward. By three and a half, I've progressed to rough puff, and after that, no holding me. She perches me on a tall stool so I can reach to stir the sauce, wraps me in her pinny that goes round and round and round me thrice, tucks it in at the waist, else I trip over it headfirst into my own hollandaise. So I become her acolyte. Reading and writing come to me easy. I learn my letters as follows. A for asparagus, asperge au beurre fondu, though never for my mother's sake with a sauce batard. B for boeuf, baron of, roasted mostly with a pudding Yorkshire, patriotically sputtering away beneath it in the dripping pan. C for carrots, carottes, choufleur, camembert and so on, right down to zabione, Though I often wonder what use the X might be since it figures in no cook's alphabet. And I stick as close to that kitchen as the croûte to a pâté or the mayonnaise to an oeuf. First I stand on that stool to my saucepans, then on an upturned bucket, then on my own two feet. Time passes. Life in this remote mansion flows by a tranquil stream, only convulsing into turbulence once a year and then for two weeks only. But that, fuss enough, the grouse shoot, when they all come from town to set us by the ears. Although Sir and Madam believe their visit to be the very and unique reason for the existences of each and every one of us, the yearly climacteric of our beings when their staff, who as far as they are concerned, sleep out of hibernation the rest of the year, now spring to life like Sleeping Beauty when her prince turns up. In truth, we get on so well without them during the other eleven and a half months, that the arrival of themselves is a chronic interruption of our routine." We sweat out the fortnight of their presence with as ill a grace as gentle folk forced by reduced circumstances to take paying guests into their home. And as for haute cuisine, forget it. Sandwiches, 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 all they want is sandwiches. And never again, ever again, a special request for a souffle, lobster or otherwise. Me ma'am always a touch broody, come the grouse shoot, moody, distracted, and even though no order came, nevertheless, every year, she would prepare her lobster souffle all the same. Send the grinding boy off the lobster, boil it alive, beat the eggs, make the panada, etc, etc, etc. As if the doing of the thing were a magic ritual that would raise up, out of the past, the great question mark from whose loins her son had sprung, so that perhaps she could get a good look at his face this time. Or perhaps there was some other reason. But she never said either way. In due course, she could construct the airiest, most savoury souffle that ever lobster graced. But nobody arrived to eat it, and none of the kitchen had the heart. So, fifteen times in all, the chickens got that souffle. Until, one fine October day, the mist rising over the moors like the steam off a consomme, the grouse taking last hearty meals like condemned men, my mother's vigil was at last rewarded. The house party arrives... And as it does, we hear the faint, nostalgic wail of an accordion as a closed barouche comes bounding up the drive, all festooned with the lis de France. Hearing the news, my mother shakes, comes over queer, has to have a sit-down on the marble pastry slab, whilst I, oh, I prepare to meet my maker, having arrived at the age when a boy most broods about his father. But what's this? Who trots into the kitchen to pick up the chest of ice the Duke ordered for the bottles he brought with him, but a beardless boy of my own age or less. And though my mother tries to quiz him on the whereabouts of some other hypothetical valet, who once upon a time might possibly have made her hand tremble so she lost control of the Cayenne, he claims he cannot understand her Yorkshire brogue. He shakes his head, he mimes incomprehension. Then, for the third time in all her life, my mother wept. First she wept for shame because she'd spoiled a dish. Next she wept for joy to see her son mould the dough. And now she weeps for absence. But still she sends the grinding boy off for a lobster for she must and will prepare her autumn ritual if only as a wake for hope or as the funeral bake meets. And taking matters into my own hands I use the quickest method the dumb waiter above stairs to make a personal inquiry of this duke as to where his staff might be. The Duke, relaxing before dinner, popping a cork or two, is wrapped up in a velvet quilted smoking jacket, much like the coats they put on very well-bred dogs, warming his slippered Morocco feet before the blazing fire and singing songs to himself in his native language. And I never saw a fatter man. He'd have given my mother a stone or two and not felt the loss. Round as the O in Rotund if he's taken aback by the apparition of this young chef out of the panelling, he's too much of a gent to show it by a jump or start. Asks, what can you do for me, nice as you like? And in my best culinary French, my petit poids de Francaise, I stammer out, the valet de chambre who accompanied you, Garnida, those many years past of your last visit. Ah, Jean-Jacques, he readily concurs. Le pauvre, he adds. He squints lugubriously down his museau. Une crise de foi. Hélas, il est mort. I blanch like an endive. He, being a perfect gentleman, offers me a restorative snifter of his bubbly. Brought as it has been all the way from his own cellars, he don't trust sirs' incinerated tastes, and I can feel it put hairs on my chest as it goes eruptating down. Primed by another bottle, in which the Duke joins me with that easy democratic affability which is the mark of all true aristocrats, I give him an account of what I take to be the circumstances of my conception, how his defunct valet wooed and won my mother in the course of the cooking of a lobster souffle. I well remember that souffle, says the Duke. Best I ever eat. Sent my compliments to the chef by way of the concierge, only added the advice of a truly exigeant gourmet to go easy on the Cayenne next time. So that was the truth of it, the spiteful housekeeper relaying only half the message. I then relate the touching story how, every grouse shoot after, my mother puts up a lobster souffle in, I believe, remembrance of Jean-Jacques, and we share another bottle of bubbly in memory of the departed until the Duke, exhibiting all the emotion of a tender sensibility, says through a manly tear, ''Tell you what, me lad, while your maman is once again fixing me up this famous lobster souffle, I shall myself, as a tribute to my ex-valet, slip down.'' ''Oh, sir,'' I stammer, ''you are too good.'' Forthwith, I speed to the kitchen to find my mother just beginning the bechamel. Presently, as the butter melts like the heart of the Duke melted when I told him her tale, the kitchen door steals open and in tippy himself. Never a couple better matched for size, I must say. The kitchen battalion all turn their heads away, out of respect for this romantic moment, but I myself, the architect of it, cannot forbear to peep. He creeps up behind her, his index finger pressed to his lips to signify caution and silence, and extends his arm and slowly, 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 with infinite delicacy and tact, he lets his hand venture athwart her flank. It might have been a fly alighting on her bum. She flicks a haunch like a mare in the field, unmoved, shakes in the flower. The duke himself quivers a bit. An expression as of a baby in a sweetie shop traverses his somewhat Bourbonesque features. He is attempting to peer over her shoulder to see what she is up to with her batterie de cuisine, but his en bon point gets in the way. Perhaps it is to shift her over a bit, or else a genuine tribute to her large charms, but now, with immense if gigantic grace, he gooses her. My mother fetches out a sigh, big enough to blow away the beaten egg whites, but, great artist that she is, her hand never trembles, not once, as she folds in the yolks. And when the ducal hands stray higher, not a mite of agitation stirs the spoon. For it is you understand the time for seasoning. And in goes just sufficient cayenne this time, not a grain more. Huzzah! This souffle will be, I flourish the circle I have made with my thumb and forefinger, I simulate a kiss. The egg whites topple into the panada. The movements of her spoon are quick and light as those of a bird caught in a trap. She upturns all into the souffle dish. He tweaks. And then she cries, To hell with it! Departing from the script, my mother wields her wooden spoon like a club, brings it smack down onto the duke's head with considerable force. He drops onto the flags with a low moan. Take that, she bids his prone form. Then she smartly shuts the souffle in the oven. How could you, I cry? Would you have him spoil my souffle? Wasn't it touch and go last time? The grinding boy and I get the duke up on the marble slab, slap his face, dab his temples with the oven cloth, dipped in chilled shabbly. At long last, his eyelids flicker, he comes to. Kel fan, he murmurs. My mother, crouching over the range, stopwatch in hand, pays him no heed. She feared you'd spoil the souffle, I explain, overcome with embarrassment. What dedication! The man seems awestruck. He stares at my mother as if he will never get enough of gazing at her. Bounding off the marble slab as sprightly as a man his size may be, he hurls himself across the kitchen, falls on his knees at her feet. I beg you, I implore you, but my mother has eyes only for the oven. Here you are! Throwing open the door, she brings forth the veritable queen of all the soufflés that spreads its archangelic wings over the entire kitchen as it leaps upward from the dish in which the force of gravity alone confines it. All present, some 47 in number, the kitchen brigade with the addition of me plus the Duke, applaud and cheer. The housekeeper is mad as fire when my mother goes off in the closed barouche to the Duke's very own regal and French kitchen but she comforts herself with the notion that now she can persuade sir and madam to find her a spanking new chef such as Soyer or Carême to twirl their moustaches in her direction and gâteau saint honore her on her birthday and indulge her in not infrequent baba au rhum. But I am the only child of my mother's kitchen and now I enter into my inheritance. Besides, how can the housekeeper complain? Am I not the youngest Yorkshire-born French chef in all the land? for am I not the Duke's stepson? Helen Simpson reading The Kitchen Child by Angela Carter. Helen spoke to Lisa Allardyce of Guardian Review about her choice. Angela Carter's best-known stories are... I suppose the gothic ones, werewolves, snowy landscapes, the, the, the ones from The Bloody Chamber, 1979. She had such a tremendous sense of humour and ferocity about her and a great comic sense. I think she'd have written libretti if she'd lived longer. Um, this story from Black Venus, which was 1985, it's 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 sunnier and funnier. It's much more high-spirited than her usual. It's the Yorkshire cook who years ago was made pregnant by some unknown aristocrat while bending to put the souffle in the oven. Um, And the narrator's voice is her teenage son wanting to discover the identity of his father. But it's all told in very... It's as light and rich as the lobster souffle around which it's plotted. And it could have been, you know, again, with a short story, you might have had the, the, the cook who's made pregnant and cast out. That's the traditional sort of trajectory... But Angela Carter always ditched the idea of the victim and she, she makes this a triumphant comedy. The servants are foregrounded here. She used to say she came herself from a long line of domestic servants when she was asked about her ancestors and she would throw a, a, any novel containing a comic cleaning lady across the room. She's probably best known, isn't she, for, for her reworking of the the fairy tales, her very sort of lush, baroque, um, very erotic, The, the Bloody Chamber... What is it about her stories, do you think, that make her such a fine writer of the form? She has become, I think, better known for her stories now, and I myself, I, I prefer them to the novels, but that might be just me. I'm a short story writer. She herself said that she felt in absolute control with a short story. It was like write, writing chamber music rather than symphonies. And she, she said the short story is not minimalist, it is Rococo. I think these, the, the twirls and grace notes and the, the brio with which she writes, it, it suits the short story form. Helen Simpson. And you can download all the short stories in this series at guardian.co.uk forward slash books.